Good morning. If you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're looking at a chapter this morning to which I can do no justice, but we're going to look at it nonetheless. As you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I have a couple of announcements for you. We recognized our student athletes. Uh, We also have a couple other things going on you need to know about. Race to the Rescue is the last fundraiser for Grow this year. Come out on Saturday, April the 12th, and run this 5K or 10K to help build a new home for Fa and her children. The first 250 people to register by next Tuesday receive a free T-shirt. Y'all like free T-shirts? Nobody's ever gotten a free T-shirt at Cedarville, right? How many of you have free T-shirts? Come on, half of you are still asleep. All right, I know it's Monday morning, it's rainy outside, but you got to help me out. We got to have fun. Guess what? We have our ultimate Frisbee club team ranked nationally. And I was going to look up what, but it was Twitter and we were praying and I couldn't remember the exact rank, but it's top five, five right there. I got you. Five in the nation nationally. Our CU model, we can clap for that. That's good. I'm not even good at ultimate Frisbee, but I'm glad these guys are. And so congratulations. CU model UN team spent last week in New York City, which is pretty cool in and of itself. But they were at the National Model United Nations Conference. They competed against 2,500 students from over 200 universities on five continents. Guess what happened? Cedarville University earned second place team award of distinguished delegation. In addition, hold on, it gets better. Eight of the 14 members of the CU team won individual recognitions, which is a new record and far beyond our fair share of the awards. So let's give them a hearty congratulations. All right, I will be out for a few days. I'm traveling, trying to do some recruiting, some other things of that nature, be at a conference as well. And so this Friday, it's my opportunity to tell you now that this Friday, is our all-access orientation. So we will have a lot of people on campus who will hopefully be freshman students next fall. So if you see them wandering around looking for where to go, please send them to the right place and not across the middle of the pond or wherever else you would like to send them to. And please let them know those are not sharks. They're just carp, okay? It's no big deal. We don't have a, we don't have a uh, Cedarville Lake monster or anything of that nature. All right. Crazy chapter today on love. It is the chapter on love in the whole Bible, which has me thinking, what do we think of when we think love? So to get everybody participating and engaged, what do you think of when you think love? Chocolate. All right. I like that. I am down with that one. Chocolate. I saw a hand. What do you think of when you think love? A feeling of affection. There's a good definition of love, a feeling of affection. Chocolate. What? Come on. You got to speak louder. Can't hear you. Your wife. Brownie points for you. Well done. Kudos. I love it. All right. What else do you think of? Dogs. Long hair. Nice job. I love it. All right. Me too. All right. I got, yeah, that's awesome. So then I started thinking about what do I think of when I think love? What comes to mind? My wife, my children, my parents, my dogs, pizza, Chuck's ice cream. I, that waffle creation that this guy had in Chuck's the other day with vanilla ice cream and sprinkles. And it was pretty amazing. Anyway, you start thinking about things you think you love and you have whole different categories for love, right? 
So, as we begin this message, you need to realize that in the Greek, now don't check out, but in the Greek, you have three different categories for love. Actually, you have four, but you have three used in the New Testament. You have eros, you have phileo, and you have agape. What we're talking about today is agape. Now, you can take this way too far, but eros love is that love that's kind of that sensual type love, but then some people take it beyond that into an ecstasy type love, and so it's a love that's what can I get, what can I take, what satisfies my desires. We are not talking about that love today, okay? That love is not PG-13 rated, and my children are sitting up here, and so we're not going there. Phileo love, or you can pronounce it many different ways, but Philadelphia is where it comes from. It's the city of brotherly love. Anybody from Philadelphia in here? So that kind of gives you something to remember. We've even got a camera guy from Philadelphia in here. And so as you think about that type love, it's the brother for brother type love, which is the platonic type love. It doesn't encompass the same thing that Eros does, but it's also not an agape type love. An agape type love is that selfless love, that love that you think of for others. So as I'm thinking through all these categories, I start thinking of songs and movies. Songs that talk about love and movies that talk about love. So last night we happened to Google the top 50 love songs of all time. What do you think was there? You know what I found and thought of? I have the lyrics to it. The greatest love of all. You got it. Whitney Houston. We have one person in the house besides me that knows about that song, right? So then we pulled the lyrics to it because you know it was number one on the charts in America, in Canada, and in Australia. And then after her death, it hit the top 100 on the charts again, even after that. And so I thought the greatest love of all, that's a cool title for a song. So what does that song actually say? Have you ever thought about the lyrics to it? I believe the children, I'm not going to sing it. Y'all really don't want me to do that. I believe the children are our future. Teach them well. Let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. Give them a sense of pride to make it easier. Let the children's laughter remind us how we used to be. So it's okay so far. Everybody's searching for a hero. People need someone to look up to. This is a sad line right here. I never found anyone who fulfills my needs. Boy, isn't that sad? Because if you have Jesus, you have someone that fulfills your needs. But if you're looking for love, like the country song, if you're looking for love in all the wrong places, you're never going to find somebody that fulfills your needs. And then she says, a lonely place to be, and so I learned to depend on me. Is that love? Part of the course says, I found the greatest love of all inside of me. The greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Is that true? I don't think so. Not after we look at the passage today. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. Is that the greatest love of all? Learning to love yourself? So then I thought about movies. And I thought to myself, I know what I'll do. I'll ask my daughter what love means. Because, you know, children sometimes have this great simplicity. So she comes down there, and I'm in the study, and I'm working on the sermon, and and, I... She said, uh, what are you doing? I said, I'm working on my sermon. I said, what do you think love is? She said, why are you asking me? I said, well, it's in my sermon. I said, so just tell me, what do you think love is? So she responds, I know what love is. Love is putting someone else's needs before your own. I thought, how profound. Wisdom from the mouth of a child. And then I said, where'd you get that from? That's really good. And she goes, Olaf said it in Frozen. 
So I pulled up what Olaf said in Frozen. This is where Anna was talking. You remember she's at the fireplace thing and she's all down and she's depressed and you can quote the lines and all this, I'm sure. And it says, I was wrong about it. It wasn't true love after all. She's all depressed because this guy that she got engaged to after she just met him and that was really funny too. Don't do that, by the way. I don't even know what true love is. That was obvious. And Olaf says, I do. It's when you put someone else's needs before your own. You know, like when Kristoff brought you back here and left you forever. <laughs> you remember the lines. What was the true act of love in that movie, though? It's the sisterly love at the end when Han's falling sword was coming down on her sister Elsa, and in a self-denying act, she put herself in between to save her sister. Was that a true act of love? Pretty good definition from Frozen. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Stand in the honor of reading of God's word. Let's read through this and we'll go through it quickly here. What is love? This chapter tells us. You're going to break it down into three separate sections. The necessity of love, a description of love, and then the permanence of love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I determine to give up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way, is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at all wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all, believes all, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, And love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Dear Lord, we pray today that as we look at this, you might help us to catch a glimpse of your love demonstrated through Christ Jesus to us on the cross, and that we might aspire to demonstrate that love in our own lives toward others. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Here's how the passage breaks down. You have the necessity of love shown in verses 1, 2, and 3. You have a description of love in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. And then 8 through 13 talks about the permanence of love. So as we walk through this and we begin looking at verses 1 through 3 of the necessity of love, here's what I want to draw your attention to is the repetition of why love is a necessity. 
Because even if you speak in the tongues of men and angels, and some people were saying that the tongues of angels was a heavenly language. Now, I'm going to say that's not right because at the very end of this chapter, he comes back around and he says that tongues will cease. If tongues was an angelic or a heavenly language, tongues would never cease because it would be in heaven. And so that's not what it's talking about here. But it's saying even if, and you see the conditional in here multiple times, if, 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 if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, I thought about doing this, but those cymbals are really expensive and I don't want to mess one up. If you went over there and just banged on the cymbal repeatedly, it'd get on your nerves, wouldn't it? You'd say, man, I really wish that would stop. That's what Paul's trying to get at here. If we do all kinds of great things, but we don't have love, then people just look at us and go, quit. You don't love me. You don't care about me. You're just like a clanging symbol. I just want to get you out of my head. And so Paul here is talking about the necessity of love. He's not talking about how love is much more important than the gifts. He's talking about how it's a necessity to have love in order to utilize those gifts. And so here in the church at Corinth, you have this list of gifts that we went through in the last discussion. And all of those gifts are great gifts and you should use your gifts and make sure that you're using those for the building up of others to the glory of God. They're your grace gifts that have been given to you. But if you use those gifts and you don't have love for other people, it's like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's an annoying in other people's ears because they don't really care about your gifts unless they know that you care about them. Love. If I have prophetic powers, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, again, if, because this is not gonna happen in this life, but if you understood all of that, if I had all faith so as to remove mountains and maybe not literally move the mountain, but if I had enough faith inside so that I could do the impossible task, the things that cannot be done because of that much faith, if I have all of those things and we would all love to have those things, but if I have not love, what does it say? I'm nothing. Is that a humbling passage to us all? If I give away all I have. And here, Paul's talking about something that, that really hits us. If I give away everything I have to the poor, if I, if I buy Tom's shoes exclusively because I want other people to have shoes somewhere else, if I construct my life so that all I'm doing is giving away every possession I have to the poor, but I don't love them, what am I really doing? Because you know, you can give away to the poor just so it makes yourself feel better. You could buy shoes just as a status symbol to give an image off of portraying that you really care about something that you don't really care about. You could give money to something to appease your conscience when in actuality, you don't love them. You don't want to be around them. You don't want to care for them. You don't want to get dirty with them. You don't want to sit down and talk to them. You just want to appease your conscience that you have more than they have. And Paul's saying here, if I give away all I have, and the implication is if I give it all away to the poor and I have not love, I gain nothing. If I give up my body, and it says here, if I give up my body to be burned, there's some problems with some of this and some people are saying it should be if I give up my body so that I may boast or if I give up my body because burning and martyrdom wasn't really present in this time at Corinth it comes along later but the overall point of what he's saying is if I give up even myself if I give everything I have and I do it without love I gain nothing and so we see here the absolute necessity of love 
You see it. You know it. You know it's true. You have teammates on sports teams. And you look at that teammate at times and you go, man, they're just selfish. They're ball hog. They always want the glory. And you look at that teammate and you think, they, they don't care about me. And it gives you a certain attitude about them, even if they have great skills. Because it's not a team concept. Not at Cedarville. But in your other classroom experience, you would go into a classroom with a professor who was absolutely brilliant. He knew everything about the subject, but you got in your mind that he doesn't really care about you as a student. All he wants to do is hear himself talk and and hear himself pontificate about the greatness of things in his mind and his knowledge. And in your mind, you look at those teachers who have that great knowledge, but they don't demonstrate that love. And you say to yourself, I don't really like them that much. I'd rather have somebody that really cared about me and wanted me to learn and really poured their life into me rather than caring about all they know. You'd rather have somebody that loves students, right? We see it. We see people get up and they'll scream and they'll yell and they'll talk about all sorts of things and you wonder, do you love me? Do you care about me? And what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth here is if you have all those gifts, if you have prophetic powers, if you speak in tongues, if you could speak in the tongues of angels, if you understood all mysteries, if you had all knowledge, if you had all faith, if you give away everything you have, if you sacrifice your body, and if you do not have love for others, you are nothing. So then the logical question comes, okay, then what is love? And so Paul obliges. He begins to talk about what is love, and he gives us a description of love. Here's what I want you to know in the description of love. And we're going to walk through this in some pretty good detail because as I try to do definitions for these, some of them are a little more difficult than others. So I've got them up here for you. So I'm going to show them to you. But here's what I want you to look at in verses four through seven. In four through seven, we get 15 verbs about love. So the first thing I want to tell you about love is love is not a pretty poem. Love is not a song. Love is not a host of words. Love is actions. Love's what you do. And so right now, some of you are looking for somebody to love or somebody to love you, or you're wondering if somebody loves you. It's not words that they say. It's not waiting for those magical words, I love you. It's actions that we do. And what we see here is not a passive love, but an active love with 15 verbs that Paul uses to describe love. And in these 15, you'll see that he says, love is patient and love is kind. Love can wait and love can act. Love can be passive in the way that it reacts to bad things. Love can be active in the way that it demonstrates itself towards others. And then he gives you a list of nots. It's not envy. It's not boast. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It is not resentful. Now, let's be honest about this right here, right now. I probably have violated more of these than I have kept. Are you with me? When we look at this passage, I start thinking if this is love, then where are Christians? Because it's so much easier for us to violate these than it is to keep them. And so right now, before we start walking through them and come to the end of this, we have to recognize our sinful desires, our sinful fallen nature cause us to want to violate these, not keep these. And so Paul gives these as a list, and he gives them as a list specifically to the church at Corinth to say, these are the things you're not doing. These are the things you are violating. These are the things that when we see them in our own life, we need to repent, and we need to try and seek to love like Christ, to love like God. 
God is describing love so that in the effort of seeking to love like that, we'll have some small glimmer of displaying the love of Christ on this earth as we love others. We can't keep these perfectly. And so I'm not laying on you a list today to say this is what love is. Ladies, if you have this as a litmus test for who you're going to marry, you're only going to be married to Jesus for the rest of your life because none of us guys can keep it up, okay? Guys, if this is your litmus test for the person that you're going to marry, then you're going to be a bachelor to the rapture, right? You are not getting a girl, all right? We can't keep this, but we should try. It should be our effort and our focus. But look at it, not envy, not boast, not have its own way, not irritable, not resentful. And then you have this parallel, this parallel statement where two things are, are juxtaposed. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Now that's interesting that wrongdoing is set opposed to truth. You would usually think that a lie or something was set opposed to truth. Some of your translations have evil instead of wrongdoing. And you would think that evil and good, but it has evil and it has truth. We'll come back to that. And then you get the all things in repetition in verse seven. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So let's walk through and look at these. When you look at the first one, you looked at love is patient. I preach out of the ESV. I read out of the ESV. So that's going to be first in all of these lists. But then I pulled the other translations to kind of give you a good broad picture of what the translators tried to communicate as they were translating the original words here. Love is patient. New King James, love suffers long. The message, which is not a literal translation, but sometimes it's helpful for us, says it never gives up. Love is patient. Patient endures unpleasant character traits and endures flaws willingly. Patience. Patience endures with people who pick their nose. Frozen reference. That didn't play well at all. Oh, well. Patience endures with people who snore. Patience endures with people who eat and chew their food loudly. Patience endures with people who have bad characteristics and you endure it. Love is patient. Love is kind. All the translations use kind here. So what is kind? Well, that's good that you asked because kind only shows up here in the New Testament. Kindness shows up repeatedly, but kind and the verb here only shows up here in the New Testament. So then I went to the dictionary and I started looking and saying, what do we think are synonyms for the word kind so that I can give you an idea of what kind really means? And I I went to the Greek lexicons as well. And here are some of the words that would come along with kind. Love is friendly. It's generous. It's considerate. It's to show courtesy or grace or mercy or favor. That's what you think of when you think about kindness, right? Random acts of kindness done towards others. That's what love is. Love shows kindness. Love does not envy. Love is not jealous. Here you see specifically Paul addressing the Corinthians, and we can look back to 1 Corinthians 3, 4, where some say, I follow Paul, others, I follow Apollos. All throughout, there's a jealousy that comes in, and Paul's saying to him, look, love does not envy. Love is not jealous. If you know somebody and you think they love you and they are constantly jealous, and you think, oh, one day I'm gonna change them, you're not gonna change them. They're gonna end up being that person unless God changes them through the Holy Spirit, and so you don't look for people you think you can change, but when you look at this, love is not envious, love is not jealous. Jealousy is what caused Cain to kill Abel in Genesis 4. Jealousy is what caused Joseph to get sold into slavery in Genesis 37. That's not love. 
That's the opposite of love. Love is not envy. It's not jealous. Love does not boast. Here's some other good translations for that. Love does not parade itself. Love does not brag. All right. Now, guys, how many of you are like me and you've struggled with this at one point in time or another? Love does not brag. Boy, we often get full of ourselves, don't we? We just think how great we are. Oh, yeah, that man, did you see that shot? That shot was incredible. That was a turnaround fallaway jumper from the corner, and nobody could touch it. That golf shot, that catch on the football field, that frisbee throw in the competition, and all of a sudden, we're it. We're the hottest thing. Did you hear me sing that song? Not me, but some of these people that actually can. You get into your gifts and you get to thinking about your gifts and you start boasting and you get puffed up and you get prideful and you get arrogant and hear what Paul is saying to him is love doesn't boast. And he's pointing back to 1 Corinthians one thirty one where he says, he who boasts, let him boast only in the Lord. He's pointing back to 1 Corinthians 3.21 where he says, let no one boast in men. 1 Corinthians 5.6 where you've got this person committing gross sin in the church and he says, your boasting is not good. And he's saying that we as human beings are prone to boast. We are prone to be prideful. We're prone to be arrogant, which comes later. We look at these things and we look at ourselves and we find the greatest love of all in ourselves, which is a false worldly message. And we see that and we begin to swell up with pride about how great we are. And when we do that, Paul says, that's not love. Love is not arrogant. It's not puffed up. It's not conceited. It's not proud. 1 Corinthians 4.6, that none of you may be puffed up. 1 Corinthians 4.18, some of you are arrogant. 1 Corinthians 5.2, and you are arrogant. 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You see what he's getting at here? It's active, it's verbs, it's denying self, it's looking for the best interest of others. Love is not rude. Love does not act unbecoming, the NASB says. Love does not act improperly, the Holman Christian Standard says. Love does not dishonor others. How many times do we dishonor others? Oh, I'll show them. You just wait till I talk to them. I'm going to put them in their place. Or sometimes in our young masculinity, you get too built up with the testosterone and you go up to somebody and you say, you want a piece of me? I'll show you who I am. And in that moment, you feel that inner sense of pride and arrogance and rudeness towards others. And Paul is saying that is not love. And we know it. First Corinthians eleven twenty two, the Lord's Supper. Do you humiliate those who have nothing? Do you go in and you have your food and you go ahead and partake and those who are the poor come in and they have nothing and you humiliate them? And Paul is saying, love is not rude. Love does not make fun of other people because their clothes are not designer clothes. Love does not make fun of some people because their ride is not a nice ride or because their stereo system doesn't have good woofers that will put out bass and rock the entire car. Love does not look at other people and say, they don't have money, they're from the wrong side of the tracks. They're not like us. Love does not look at people and act in a way that puts other people down. It builds other people up. Gosh, how guilty are we of not having this type of love? Love does not insist on its own way. There again, I'm guilty. So many times in life, 
even on, even on good days, there are little pieces of good days where you just all of a sudden notice yourself and you want it your way. And you, I, mean, I mean, you're looking for Burger King, right? You can have it your way. That's what you want. And that's not love. NKJV says, love seeks, does not seek its own. Holman Christian Standard is not selfish. NIV is not self-seeking. 1 Corinthians 6, 6, one brother goes to law against another brother because he's seeking his own self-interest. And he says, when you go to court against somebody else, you've already lost because you're taking it before the others. 1 Corinthians 10, 24, we're talking about the stumbling block and doing all things to God's glory. He says, let no one seek his own good. 1 Corinthians 10, 33, Paul says, I act not seeking my own advantage, but for the advantage of others. And you see how Paul is crafting this letter. And sometimes we look at 1 Corinthians 13 and we want to pull it out of context and we want to put it on a wall and we want to talk about how this is love and this is a grand picture. But what Paul's really saying to the Corinthians is he's saying, this is what love is and that's not what you're demonstrating in your life or in the church. You are violating these things. So at the same time that he's painting this high picture of love, he's looking at them and saying, you are not demonstrating this. Love is not irritable. How many of you wake up in a bad mood before you get your second cup of coffee in you? There's four of us in the room that are honest. The rest, I'm just kidding. Some of you are morning people. You wake up ready to go. You get irritable at night. Love's not irritable. This is what it means. I looked it up and tried to give you a better definition or a definition that could relate. It's not easily provoked to anger. It does not react with heightened emotion to escalate a situation. Love doesn't fly off the handle or explode. When something happens and somebody comes back at you and they confront you, love doesn't then escalate and love doesn't react with an angry response. Love suffers, it bears, it endures, which is what we're getting to. It doesn't come back with that irritable angriness, that easily provoked aspect. That's not love. If you're demonstrating that characteristic in your relationship with your friends and your relationship with somebody else and your relationship with your parents, if you're demonstrating that easily provoked aspect or characteristic, that's not love. Love is not resentful. It thinks no evil, the New King James says. It does not take into account a wrong suffered, the NASB says. It does not keep a record of wrongs. It's not a ledger book of offenses. It forgives easily. 1 Corinthians 5.13 says, purge out the evil. 1 Corinthians 10.6 says that we might not desire evil as they did, referring back to the children of Israel. 1 Corinthians 14.20 says, be infants in evil. Don't plan or be masterful in your evil. Don't plot to do things in that nature. Love is not resentful, doesn't think evil. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. And here I've got listed for you the different words that would replace wrongdoing and truth. And you'll notice that all the translations use truth. New King James uses iniquity instead of wrongdoing. NASB, unrighteousness instead of wrongdoing. NIV uses evil instead of wrongdoing. And you'll notice that those words that they're put together demonstrates that love loves truth. Now, here's something I want you to understand. Sometimes we look at each other and we say, can't we just love each other and get along? Can't we just love each other and accept something that's false? Can't we just love each other and not present truth? But that's not true love. Unity without truth is not true unity. Love without truth is not true love because if I think you're doing something that will harm you, if I think you have a belief that is false, that is wrong, then in love and with a motivation of love, I should present that truth to you because that's what's helpful to you. If I find out you're 
getting addicted to drugs or to painkillers. I should go to you and say, that is not good for you. That is not helpful for you. And if you say to me, just love me for who I am, just love me the way I am, I should say to you, that's not love. Love is to want what's better for you. And the same thing holds true in all truth. So we don't accept the wrongs, but we love with truth for the right reasons. An unhealthy relationship with somebody of the opposite sex, I got to go to you and say, that's not good for you. It's not healthy. I got to move quickly through here. Love bears all things. NIV says it always protects. New Living Translation says it never gives up. The message says it puts up with anything. Now, is that true? There's a limit to some of this. Love bears all things. Do you put up with anything? Well, there's also that aspect of truth. And when we look back at this, we realize we could replace Jesus into all of these and Jesus would do all of these, but Jesus is also the Jesus that cleansed the temple. And so we have to make sure that we have some type of of understanding that when we say love bears all things, we're not talking about love bears an, an abusive relationship. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about love bears things that are not harmful to your person. Love believes all things. Again, this doesn't mean a gullible believability to where somebody tells you, as I once told my little brother, that the lights on the edge of the wings were flashlights that the pilot had duct tape on there so he could see at night when we were flying in an airplane. Love doesn't believe that stuff. Or the clouds on the horizon and you tell him that's Alaska and you can see it off in the distance. Love doesn't believe those brotherly jokes that you play on one another. But it says love believes all things. What does that mean? I think it means that you don't immediately distrust. You don't immediately assume wrong. You don't jump to look for bad motives into somebody, but love believes those things and it believes ultimately in Christ Jesus that Christ can change us. Love hopes all things. What do we mean to hope for all things? We don't hope we're gonna win the lottery. What it means when we talk about hope is an anticipation of looking to the gospel, looking to the confidence toward that which is beneficial and good. Jesus is our hope. And so when love hopes all things, love hopes through the gospel message. Love endures all things. It perseveres. It remains firm under suffering or misfortune. Misfortune. It doesn't flee at the sign of trouble. If you have somebody and the first time you have an argument, they're gone, let them go. You don't want somebody that flees at the sign of trouble. You want somebody that is gonna persevere, that is gonna endure, that is gonna love. Love stands firm in the face of opposition. I've gotta quickly move through this last part too and close this out here. He moves from that description of love to the permanence of love. Love never ends. This is important and he comes back and the greatest of these is love. Here's what I want you to see. It says, love will, it says that this will pass away, will cease, will pass away, will pass away. And then it gives another analogy of in part, in part, childish ways. And then when you grow up, you know in part still. Eventually, you fully know. And so he's got two different analogies he's going on here. Some things will pass away. Some things we only know in part. But love will not pass away. Love is the greatest gift that we need to be working towards. So let's walk through it right quick. It won't take me just a second. Love never ends. We're bracketed by love. As for prophecies, they're going to pass away. As for tongues, it says they will see. Some people make a big deal out of this. It's not really that big a deal, but Paul uses the same word, will pass away, will pass away, and will pass away. He uses a different one here for cease. So this is where some people make an argument for the cessation of tongues. We'll talk about that next Monday. So if you want to hear that one, you got to come back then. Here's what else he says. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. 
For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. What does that mean? When Jesus comes, you have no reason for a preacher. I'm out of a job as soon as Jesus comes back. Isn't that good news to know? I will eventually be completely unemployed. Because once Jesus is here, nobody gives a rip what the preacher has to say. They're going to listen to Jesus, right? Nobody wants you to tell somebody about Jesus when Jesus is there. You're just going to go listen to Jesus talk about what Jesus wants to say. And so that's it. It's going to pass away. And then he moves and he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. Oh, we could drag that analogy out if we had time, but we don't have time. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now I see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. In Corinth, they were famous for creating bronze mirrors. In a bronze mirror with a dim light, you think about what image you would have reflected versus seeing someone face to face or in HD on a screen. Now you know why I do PowerPoints, because I don't like looking at myself up there. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. In verse 13, he moves and he says, faith, hope, and love abide. Some will interpret this to mean faith, hope, and love abide for all times into eternity. But of these three, the greatest of these is love. So where is this love? I don't have it. I'm working on it. I'm trying. I don't have it. If you're honest, neither do you. We mess up. This love is found in Jesus you can substitute Jesus for all those things and it holds fast. John, 1 John 4, 8 says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. John three sixteen tells us that God so loved the world. Here's what I want you to get. Don't look at the world's view of love. Don't look to a song for a view of love. Don't even look to a Disney movie for a view of love. Look to God. Look to Jesus. And when you fail and you recognize that, repent, but then think about how great Jesus' love is for us and that being in the form of God, he humbled himself to take on the form of a man and went to a cross, even the death of the crucifixion of the cross to die for my sin and for your sin, and that's what love is. And so as we find others who demonstrate love for us, it should cause us to praise Jesus. When we fail in our own love, we should repent and we should praise Jesus. Jesus. It's the ultimate demonstration of love in this chapter, the greatest chapter, which talks about the greatest love of all. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we fail miserably at trying to have the type of love that 1 Corinthians 13 talks about. God, today I just hope you give us a glimpse of what love really is so that as we encounter others, we will demonstrate that love, Father, so that we won't be blinded by what the world says about love and its faulty views of it. But God, give us a glimpse of it and give us a glimpse of it so that we can see the gospel and can display the gospel in our own lives. And Lord, today we pause and we thank you for the love that you showed us through Jesus Christ on the cross, the ultimate love. And we thank you. Lord, I pray for our students, faculty, and staff that you would give them a good day and a good week and that you would help us all to demonstrate that love towards one another to the best of our ability through the power of your Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You are dismissed.